Our many scriptures for today begin in John chapter 13, which you can find on page 1639 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Beginning in verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Moving to chapter 14, starting at verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Moving down to verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In chapter 15, starting at verse 26. When the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Then moving down to verse five in chapter 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart, I have overcome the world. And moving to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is found on page 1733. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thank you, John. So I'm to remind you that there'll be no AMA today. If you have questions, you can send them into podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll catch up with them in a podcast. I want to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit. In the last six weeks, seven weeks, I've worked with two different groups of, uh, of people um, just about the topic of who the Holy Spirit, and it's been very interesting to hear comments, um, things that they thought were true that weren't, things that they have experienced. Um, way too often people hear the term Holy Spirit and is he a person, is he an it, uh, is he an advocate, is he a counselor, is he a helper, just what is he, who is he, uh, why, what's the big deal for us? And the big deal is that he's the representation of Christ within us so that we can be Christian. Many times we hear that word and our minds go to, oh, do we have to speak in tongues or do we have to do crazy things? And Sometimes you've seen things, you've heard things, probably haven't experienced, but you heard it from somebody else. And it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, the problem is, is you want everything to do with that. You just don't want to go some places. And my grandpa, who was an Assembly of God pastor for 50 years, used to tell me, Mike, keep your eyes on Jesus. One degree to the left will be Satan, and one degree to the right will be the flesh. Good advice. Satan wants to deceive you, and the flesh wants to do everything in its power to act like God. And both will mess you up. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. And so I'm going to walk through some of the verses that, um, that Sharon read to us. Hopefully just to bring clarity. Now some of you understand who the Spirit is and you know, have worked with things in the Spirit for a long time. Bear with us. Uh, some very, very new. I won't ask for a show of hands. Jesus in John 13 does a very strange thing. 
he's got all the boys in the upper house, upper room, and takes off his robe, puts on a towel around his waist, gets a basin of water, and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. He does this because he's illustrating that he's honoring them because they are going to do more, in his words, in just a little while, than he did outside of the resurrection and and the crucifixion. And we ask, how can that be possible? He comes to Peter and he says, you know, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter's like, you're not going to wash just my feet. You know, if you're going to wash me, wash all of me. And and Jesus can sense the, the trepidation. What's going on here? Why is this act happening? And I remember the first time I met Billy Graham. He was standing there and he took my hand in both of his hands and he said, Michael, I am so glad that you're on the ministry team. I said, Dr. Graham, you've got it backwards. I am so privileged to serve you in any way I can. Can you imagine if Jesus walked in the doors here, had a basin and knelt down in front of you, the feelings that would start to run through your head? I'm not worthy. you saw what I did yesterday. You, th- you know my thoughts. I don't deserve this. I can't do what you do. And Jesus is saying, yes, you can. And that's a scary thing. When an authority, especially one named God, says, I want you to continue the work of my son here on earth in the same manner that he did. See, if Jesus modeled throughout the Gospels what it meant to be led by the Spirit, and then we're told that upon salvation the Spirit lives within us, don't you think it's rational that something supernatural should be about you? What did Jesus expect of us? Very truly I tell you in the middle of the verse, the slide there, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these. How can we do anything greater than Jesus? Well, it's amazing when you walk through the Gospels, you see phrases that he was led by the Spirit or the Spirit was upon him or full of the Holy Spirit. And those phrases are often when he's about to do something miraculous. And it wasn't a one-time touch like it was in the Old Testament. At the baptism of Jesus by John, a different word, the Holy Spirit didn't light upon him. He, He dwelt within him. And Jesus modeled the life that we're supposed to live. Paul in 1 Corinthians opens up with, some have come to you with eloquent speech, I come to you in power. Now, many have tried to say the power was just for the disciples' time. But the problem is there hasn't been a different dispensation between them and us now. We're still living in that time when the Holy Spirit was upon the church where the Christians were the advocates for the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5 calls us ambassadors of the kingdom of God to carry out the work that Jesus started here on earth until his return. Now, obviously, it excludes for us, 
the, resur or the crucifixion and the resurrection. That only needed to happen once by a very special person, Jesus. But from there, he says, go and do the things that I did in my name. Now, there's two sidebars I want to hit real quick. To do something in my name means when you do something in the name of Jesus, you do it as he would have done it and as he wants it done. That has a direct correlation to how we pray. There's a lot of times when we pray things that Jesus would not have prayed that weren't according to God's will, and those prayers go unanswered. And we're like, well, why doesn't he answer? He said he would do everything that I asked him to do. He said that in the context of his will, of his character, of his position. And so we need to pray, as, as Nick has said many times, we need to pray the prayers that Jesus would have prayed for you and for others. Because those are the prayers that line up with God's will. The second sidebar is that we need to recognize that being full of the Spirit includes all of us. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But it's, it's critical. As we go through this this morning, you don't separate in your mind the evangelicals and the charismatics. The Bible is not written to the evangelicals and the charismatics. It's written to Christians. The same spirit dwells in all Christians, regardless of the camps you might find yourself in here on earth. Theologian Dr. Gordon Fee said this, the Holy Spirit is both the interior expression of the unseen God's personality and the visible manifestation of God's activity here on earth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. We call them the triune God or part of the Trinity. All of the same essence with different functions. God the Father, you see them all in Genesis. There's God the Father, there's the Creator, the creative one, Jesus, and then there's the spirit that broods across the water. They all have different functions, and God sent Jesus. Jesus was here in person, in bodily form. Then he told the disciples, I came from God, I'm going back to God, but I'm going to send you someone else, and that's the Holy Spirit. There was a, a gap between the cross and when the Holy Spirit came for all Christians. And there's confusion because some places it says, well, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they knew. Not until the resurrection did people truly be able to believe in Christ and receive him into their heart as Savior and Lord, as Messiah. But then when the Spirit came, there was a gap. And so sometimes there was a salvation before Pentecost and then there was a baptism. After Pentecost, everybody who came to Christ received the Holy Spirit. He talks about that in Acts. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I guess it's right here. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's no caveat to that. It's simply re repent, believe, receive, be filled. 
and that's, that's important for each of us to, to really grasp a hold of. Um, when you start a study of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people want to start in 1 Corinthians 12 because that's where the gifts are. It's where the fun is. That's not where Jesus started. He started in, um, I got my slides off somehow. Um, can you go to the six distinct things, John, John 14? Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming in John 14 through 16, and that's where you need to start so you know. And these are the things that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do. If you start in 1, John, or 1 Corinthians 12, you can get the idea that those gifts are just to help us. They're not. They're to help Jesus declare who he is and to bring others to Christ. Says he will help Jesus' followers remain with him forever as Jesus' personal representative and substitute for all believers. He'll help them interpret the teachings of Jesus. He'll testify to the world who Jesus is. He'll convict people of their sin. He'll reveal truth and guide people in it. And he'll point people to Jesus. In John 17, Jesus in the priestly prayer, Jesus talks about that the Spirit does these things and points to Jesus, and he says, anytime I am lifted up, I glorify the Father. So there's this symbiotic, symbiotic relationship between the Spirit and Jesus and the Father. They're always working in tandem to do the will of the Father in each of their distinctive ways. In salvation, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He draws us to Jesus. He completes the regeneration and renewal. It says, by the washing of the blood and, and, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit in Titus 3. And then he seals our salvation in Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, some of the confusion is we see some people that were filled with the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost. That happens in the same way that you see it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, we see him in Genesis, we see it in the creation of Israel, we see the Holy Spirit active in anointing Saul as the first king, we see the anointing of David, we see him in the um, creation of the ethics for the people of God. David in Psalm 51, after his affair with Bathsheba, says, let me read it directly, He says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So there were evidences that the Spirit had presence there to do the things that, that the Spirit needed to do, but he didn't indwell the people, not until Pentecost. In the, in the New Testament, in Luke, we see Elizabeth was filled, uh, the mother of John was filled with the Spirit, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, Zechariah was filled with the Spirit, Simeon in Luke, uh, two, Jesus at his baptism. And then the language changes, and after Pentecost, it says that the Holy Spirit came with all Christians and indwelt them. So there's a transition period that sometimes we want to use in arguments to make sure that we can prove our argument. Well, who got baptized and who didn't? Well, we've got to look at the context and the timetable of what was actually happening. Jesus was here, but then he was leaving. Then there was nobody here for a little bit. He ascended. They were waiting for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. 
And yet during that time period, people were learning of Jesus. They were choosing to follow him. And then when Pentecost came, from that point on, all were baptized or filled in the Holy Spirit. And so throughout the Bible, it talks about the Spirit's role in, in helping us become disciples. Uh, talks about us helping us read and understand our Bible, illuminates truth to us. Uh, talks about how the Spirit helps us in prayer, uh, helps us to worship and magnify God and understand who God is, gives us boldness and witness, uh, helps us in Christian fellowship. And in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit are there, the character of Christ. When we come to Christ, they begin to show up as we grow in Him. Romans 5, or 8 is an amazing set of uh, verses that we need to truly understand. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. If you're not a Christian, you don't want Christian things. You want worldly things. You want fleshly things. But those who live in accordance to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. When you become a Christian, one of the ways that you know you are a Christian is you begin to want the things that you used to disdain. You begin to want which is holy, which is righteous. You begin to want to help people. You, you no longer are as selfish as you used to be. We'll keep working on that one. But all of a sudden, the things that God wants are a part of what you're thinking about. You're thinking in a different way. Romans 12, 2, Philippians 4, 8, Colossians 3, 2. You're beginning to think as God would have you think because you're living in accordance with the Spirit and your minds are now set on the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. In other words, it leads to death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the Spirit or realm of the flesh cannot please God. I've met many in the church over the years who thought they were Christians. Turns out they were merely churchgoers. They had never truly understood Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit. They were doing their best in the flesh to be good, and every one of them was miserable because Christianity didn't work for them. It can't work outside of the infilling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because that's, the Christ, that's Christ's representative within us, fulfilling the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and then growing us up into his goodness and character. You, however, Christians, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. If you find yourself in that place where you have tried Christianity for a long time and it just doesn't work, maybe you need to go back and look at why are you trying so hard. Is it you want to be a good person? You want to be accepted by God, but you've never repented of your sins and received him as your Lord and your Savior? You truly haven't recognized Jesus for who he is as God's son? If you need to do that, that's as simple as it is. 
is just to pause and to say, I can't do this on myself. I choose you, Jesus. I choose you as my Lord and my Savior. I choose to recognize you as the Son of God. Help me in who you want me to be. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, we're all going to die because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he, will raise, or he who raised Christ from the dead will also give your life or give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. That's the promise of the resurrection for us. When we die, our bodies die, our spirits live as Christians. We go to be with the Father. In Hebrews, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us. Someday we'll be in that cloud. There's a progression in 1 Corinthians 2. The reason I had Sharon read it is it says that who knows this mind of God except for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. This is a rational progression. Then it says, who knows the spirit of man except the spirit of man? If the spirit of God has come to indwell the spirit of man upon confession of faith in Christ Jesus, then the spirit of God who knows the mind of God is working with the spirit of man who knows the mind of man. And then it says this remarkable thing at the end of the chapter. Therefore, we have the mind of Christ. Now that is almost an absurd statement. If you could live in my mind, you'd go like, where, where is he? So how does the Holy Spirit talk with us? How does he guide us? How does he illuminate scripture? How does he help us stand against temptation? How does he do all these things? through this, the Spirit of God, who is God, dwells within you and has communication with your spirit, pre-intellect, in your subconscious. That way, it's just a natural response to be Christian. We don't have to sit around and wait for a moment and say, oh, God just told me something. Ninety-nine percent of the time, or maybe ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, it's naturally supernatural. Now, that's a phrase that comes out of a book called "Empowered Evangelicals." If if you want to explore more about the the lane between, if this were the Charismatics and this were the Evangelicals, how do you walk down the middle of the road? That's a great book. It's only about that thick, and I encourage you to read it. It's called "Empowered Evangelicals." As God's spirit communicates with my spirit, I begin to understand through his encouragement what he wants me to do. Let me illustrate it within the last 12 hours. At 1.50 this morning, I woke up with a start with the impulse to check my phone. On there was a text from Nicole. She said, please pray we're taking knocks to ER. So I wrote out a prayer and text and sent it back to her. I didn't know where she was transitioning. 
And then I just began to pray for Knox. Unfortunately, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but I got a lot of praying done. About 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, somewhere in there, got another text that said, uh, Knox is being admitted to NICU at Children's. Um, Can we just pause and pray for him? Excuse my tears. Heavenly Father, by the authority that we have in the name of Jesus, we just symbolically lay a hand on Knox. That you would heal him. There's room for, the atone, in, for healing in the atonement, Father. There were times when you proved things and miracles, and there were times you just did it because you loved. I know you love Knox. Would you bring healing to that little body? Where there is wisdom required by doctors and nurses, would you give it freely? We don't want to presume, but we do ask boldly. In your name, Father, amen. Who woke me up at 1.50? Was it the flesh asking me to pray? Doubt it. Was it Satan? Pretty sure that didn't happen. That only leaves one other option. The Holy Spirit did. Many times you have been awoken or just had this thought, I need to call somebody, I need to talk to somebody. Uh, You've written a... a, a, uh, scripture in a card, you've said something to somebody and they have said, wow, I really needed to hear that. And you had no idea that the Holy Spirit was supernaturally working in and through you for their benefit because that's how it works. It's just naturally supernatural. See, if if the spirit of the mighty God dwells within you, expect him to do supernatural things through you. Now, from here, we can go to 1 Corinthians 12, and we're not going to today. That's a different, different sermon, a different day. I am going to teach a class in January on prayer. We'll talk a lot about these things. It'll be a six-week class. I invite you to that if you want to learn more about prayer and how the Spirit works through that. Why do we need to understand this? Because if you don't know that the Spirit of God dwells within you, you don't know to be expectant. And if you're not expectant, you're going to miss the majority of what God wants to do in and through you. Why do the charismatics have a very short prayer? More. Because that's supposed to be the prayer for all of us. Show me more. In Ephesians, I think it's two, it says that when we get to heaven, God's going to open up more of who he is to us. But here on earth, the Holy Spirit wants to use you. He wants to embolden you. He wants to let you be a witness at home and in your neighborhood. And he'll give you the words and he'll give you the boldness to do that. He wants you to pray in the name of Jesus because that's the authority of King Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He always lifts up Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We need to embrace Paul clearly says, seek 
the gifts because of the giver, not instead of the giver, but because of the giver. The giver is what the Father wanted Jesus to accomplish here on earth and then fulfill in the Holy Spirit within each of you. That's why Jesus said, you can do more than I did. But what it means is you have to trust what's happening in you. And it's good. It's wonderful. It's powerful. And you know what? You'll make mistakes. It might be the pizza. But most of the time, if you're called to do something good or do something in the name of Jesus, it's not the flesh and it's sure not Satan. It's the Holy Spirit within you wanting you to do something. And Paul ends, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians 13, with this phrase, and in the fellowship of the Spirit of God. That's who we are. We are the fellowship of the Spirit of God, Jesus' church. Do not despise what God does within you. It's precious, it's good, it's powerful. Learn, but learn in a healthy way. By that I mean stick to scripture. You can let other things guide you, but always proof text it in, this, in the scripture. Risk. You're risking against God. He will not steer you wrong. God loves you, and he loves his church, and he loves those who are not in his church. And one of the greatest ways the Holy Spirit moves is to embolden you and empower you to be a witness. Be bold. Be strong. Because the Lord, our God, dwells within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's not crazy. It's just supernatural. It's just beyond our means. And thank you that you've allowed us to know you in a very wonderful way, a supernatural way. Father, help us to learn to pray the prayer more that we would delight in your presence, that we would delight in worshiping you. We love you, Father. We truly do. In your name, amen. Any 